But if he is with Christ, then he would want us. He would want those. He would, he would want his funeral to be a, a time when the preacher stood up and refuted his theology and preached the gospel. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Hey, Nick. Yep, doing well. All the kids back in school. How's how's that going for you guys? I'll have to ask my wife. I have nothing to do with it. I've, <laughs> I've seen her I writing a little bit about it. It seems like a lot for her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel really bad. I just watch her work and feel really bad for her. Our that's... kids are our kids aren't really in school. Well, that's not true. Our oldest is in first grade, uh, but she's homeschooled, so she only goes to she goes to school once a week. As far as I can tell, for them to uh, just determine whether or not we have upheld our end of the bargain in actually teaching her <laughs> anything, and so I don't know. I don't know what the disciplinary process is yet. We're hoping to not find it, but um, she enjoys it. And right, then the right. other two are just in day school, so. And we have two sons now in a classical Christian school here in Louisville called Highlands Latin School. If you're a Louisville listener, uh, it's the best decision we ever made. We're so excited and happy about it. Anyway, John Shelby Spong, former bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Newark, has died. Uh, two weeks ago, our friend Jeff Walton of the Institute of Institute for Religion and Democracy, whose insights and commentary we almost always really like, responded on Twitter to someone who wrote this about John Spong. Quote, boomer Anglicans really be out here thinking young people are reading John Shelby Spong. Now, Spong, of course, was still alive two weeks ago, so Jeff couldn't have known that Spong would soon be in the news again when he retweeted that with this response. Quote, your periodic reminder that no one under 40 has any idea who Spong is. His claim that Christianity must change to his own views or die has been completely disproven. Now, Matt and Ann did an episode on preventing grace about Spong, which you should all go listen to, but we felt like there was more that could be said about the man, his ministry, and his impact on the church. And this is where we wanted to start with the idea that his claim that Christianity must change or die, which is also the title of what might be his most famous book, has been, quote, disproven. Now, certainly in a sense, that's true. True Christianity has not changed and will not die. Our Lord is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. And yet the efforts to undermine true biblical Christianity continue apace in the culture whether or not people who are under 40 have ever heard of Jack Spong. Now, a great recent example, when ACNA minister Tish Harrison Warren was announced as the author of a New York Times subscriber-exclusive newsletter, uh, Chrissy Stroop, who is a person uh, backed up by the much better-known Diana Butler Bass, criticized the Times for platforming, quote, a kinder, gentler, anti-gay authoritarian. This is for such fringe beliefs as the orthodoxy of a male-only episcopate and the necessity of evangelism. So we might say that culturally acceptable Christianity has changed and is dying. And we've talked a lot on the show these last few weeks about ex-evangelicals. And it seems that John Spong's death reminds us once again that an ex-evangelical is the only socially acceptable quote-unquote Christian. So guys, what do you think about Spong and the long shadow he casts over the place of Christianity in our culture? 
Well, I mean, it, the the assumption underlying the the phrase that Christianity must change or die is that Christianity, like every other religion in Spong's view, is just the product of of human human spirituality. Just it's, it's something that emerges from human culture, and so because that's true, then why would we hang on to vestiges of something that that our culture has passed by? Why you know he. We know now, and this is one of his examples. We know now that that women don't just spontaneously generate children, um, and that, that it takes it takes two to make a child. Um, and and yet it seems that we still cling to this this primitive idea of the virgin birth, which everyone with a with a basic elementary school scientific knowledge knows can't happen. That that was that was literally the level of his argumentation. That was that was that was the illustration he used in rescuing the Bible from from fundamentalism. And his idea is that you know, of course, since we're a scientific community, then we need to we need to have a scientific religion, one that one is consistent with with what science teaches. And so and so the, from the very beginning, the presupposition that Spong came into the into the church with or into the, the teaching office with is that you know God's. God, he doesn't think God's a personal God. He's this kind of ground of being, I think is what he, what he would say. But regardless of what he is, we don't really actually touch him. We get, we just, we, our religion is just the uh, human expression of human, of human desires and longings. And so if that's your presupposition going in, then yeah, we, then, then let's find something more, more popular, I guess, yeah. um, that will fit, that will fit the culture. Um, and then we'll grow, but then, but then it's interestingly you see the you see that his own diocese, the diocese of Newark, um, under his under his under his visionary why, leadership, <laughs> visionary leadership uh, you know, lost fifty percent of its people during his tenure. Fifty percent. That's the cost I, of discipleship, Matt. That's uh, yeah. The, that's the... <laughs> well, right. No, it, but see now, first it's you need to change or die. But then when you change and you die, then <laughs> it's the cost of discipleship. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I served there for six years, well after he was already retired. But yeah. the the decline had only continued. That's right. So I yeah, guess I mean, it's a humanistic religion. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean he was sort of like the love child of Schleiermacher and Feuerbach, really. You know, <laughs> um, this sort of ground of being is the idea of a non impersonal God, and then the idea that Feuerbach had that. Um, all theology is just anthropology writ large. You know, we're, we're just frightened people and we project upon the heavens something of our deepest longings and fears, and we call that God. And, you know, it's all been tried before. I mean, that was what was so, um, so interesting to me um, with respect to Bishop Spong is how uh, sort of hackneyed and trite his arguments were and how, how serious people, um, seriously people took them. I mean, I think I mentioned here before I was introduced to him, before I was a... a well, when I was just coming back to the faith in college and I naively started taking religious studies classes, um, you know, the idea, like I mentioned, I think last week that, um, that that's what one should do. But I took a sociology of religion class where they assigned that Bishop Spong's, you know, hot off the press in 1998 or whatever, um, uh, uh, living in sin, question mark, how, how Christianity must change or die or, or, or some you know, it's a common theme. And um, and I was shocked by it, just absolutely shocked. And I went to the professor and I said, you know, this is not Christianity as far as I ever encountered it. And he said, well, son, you know, I don't you're not a bishop in a mainline church. You know, I think we're going to take his his opinion over yours. And I'll never forget that. 
And uh, but, you know, when I was re responding to that tweet that you mentioned about how supposedly no one thinks about Spong, um, it's simply because the, as you mentioned, Nick, the, the sort of acceptable Christianity to the extent that the New York Times and other kind of enlightened um, outlets will allow for it has simply is a sort of warmed over version of, of his vision of what Christianity should be. I mean, you look, you go down the list, you know, you, you have an impersonal sort of Unitarian idea of the divine, you know, not, there's, there's no need for the atonement. Um, there's no uh, miracles. There's no, um, there's basically not nothing other than a self-defined appeal to quote, do better, you know, in the modern parlance. And um, that's a perfectly acceptable type of religion. Um, and we will be happy for you to um, come and give the convocation uh, prayer at our <laughs> local high school, if that's what you believe. But if we put a fine tooth on any of that, well, then, um, well, then you're just a fundamentalist. I mean, that's what, I mean, like, um, you know, that if you actually put a a biblical definition definition around any of these um, sort of theological concepts, then you are going to be painted with this this broad evangelical fundamentalist brush, which we've talked about. And for some people, that's that's a fate worse than death. <laughs> you know, I mean, John Stott. I mean, this is where you know you can Google it, but if you read uh, Bishop Spong's um, sort of reflection <laughs> on the death of John Stott, uh, who is rightly understood in Anglican circles as a um, as a towering intellectual and, and spiritual figure, um, he essentially calls him a, a backwoods fundamentalist, you know, um, troglodyte. I mean, that's essentially the, the 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 judgment of Spong on Stott. I mean, and we look at the two men and their respective shadows shadows cast. Um, and well, I'll be happy to continue to stand uh, with Stott under the cross of Christ um, and in opposition to just about everything that Bishop Spong um, seemed to live uh, at least the last part of his life for. It's, it is interesting that that when you look at the evangelical left, and I mean, the real evangelical left, the, the those who do try as hard as they can to conform themselves to the to the kind of the cultural current in order to be appealing to it, you know, it's, it's always losing battle. So, so you, you mentioned uh, uh, Reverend Warren here, uh, Tish Warren. You know, she's, she is one of those who I think, I, I like her personally, but I do think she tries to conform a lot, as much as she can to the, kind of this, the, the social currents without compromising basic orthodoxy. But, but the world won't let you do that. The, the main lines won't let you do that. The Spongian uh, "Quote unquote Christians won't let you do that." Same, I think Karen Swallow Pryor, who, who I also who I like personally, wrote an article in the New York Times uh, condemning abortion this yeah. past week. You remember that? Um, yeah. And and she would she had been embraced by uh, people like Diana Butler Bass and people like that. But when she wrote that article, yeah. man, yeah, yeah, I mean, good that for was her. It. I mean, good yeah, for good her. for her. Yeah, it was yeah I thought. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, you know, I, I think to the extent that people have these platforms, they should use them. Um, and I think that, you know, but what is going to be the case, as we've seen, is that when they come into contact with um, sort of the more angry um, ex-evangelicals, which is in the case of this uh, Chrissy Stroop or Strout person, um, is leading a charge. There's a hashtag, Lee, um, empty the pews. It's like a hashtag <laughs> on the Twitter profile for this person. And um, that's, that's a, a passion that um, is going to come into conflict with anyone that has any um, uh, voice that uh, articulates something of traditional Christianity. Um, and I think 
you know, I don't, I don't um, revel or I don't relish um, that type of online vitriol for anyone, much less priests in our own church. Uh, but I think it's going to be more the case than not as, as we continue to um, uphold uh, Christian, uh, traditional biblical Christian uh, perspectives on all sorts of things in an increasingly um, unchristian and increasingly hostily unchristian world. I mean, you know, I'm reading, I just can't help, I pulled up um, Bishop Spong's uh, reflection on John Stott, which is titled John Stott colon, a fundamentalist in sheep's clothing, question mark. He does a lot of like colon question marks in his, uh, his sort of you know, <laughs> writing. Yeah, I'm just asking questions That's here. right, just questions. <laughs> well, he says, John Stott struggled all his life to make his dated version of Christianity relevant to the modern world. That's not easy since he, like all evangelicals, starts with the assumption that the Bible is, quote, revealed truth. For John Stott, the proper method for settling questions for Christians is to search the Bible's pages for answers. Revealed truth for him is timeless, and thus Holy Scripture provides eternal solutions for all contemporary issues, an argument made by fundamentalist Christians. Well, he goes down the list. And yeah, call me a fundamentalist. Well, that's what's, so, that's what's interesting, is that when we are going to run into the Christianity that um, John Spong um, preached, uh, certainly towards the end of his, uh, for, for the last uh, decades of his life, uh, what we're actually going to run into is simply a Christianity that has been shorn of all of its unique um, uh, claims, all of its contentious arguments, and, and fundamentally all of its meaning, which is why, unsurprisingly, the diocese and the churches that have been heavily influenced by this type of quote-unquote Christianity um, have ceased to be um, viable uh, churches because they're they're not Christian. I mean, they're not in any sort of historic way. I mean, if you deny the the personalhood of God, the reality of miracles, the need for the atonement and the bodily resurrection of Christ, um, there's not much left to hang on to <laughs> with respect to uh, your quote unquote Christianity, uh, because what you're talking about looks a lot more like um, some sort of uh, strange uh, Middle Eastern Buddhist sect, uh, perhaps, than an actual Christian profession. And and so that's where we are. I mean, that's why I, I think you're right. There's probably not a lot of people with a yellowed copy of Living in Sin like I have in my library that I have been carrying around with me since college as like a like an albatross or a um, that's not the proper metaphor. It's like a, like a totem uh, for what for a direction <laughs> that the church could go. Um, and uh, but there's probably not a lot of people reading those books still. But it's in part because there have been so many people who have already digested. every book. It's right. And have have simply. Um, been preaching, teaching, and exuding that through the quote-unquote pulpits of the mainline church for for decades. It's like thinking that because nobody really knows much about Henry Ford, that he wasn't an overwhelming influence on our culture. Like we have cars in the assembly line everywhere. Whether or not you've heard of Henry Ford, you're living in Henry Ford's world. And whether or not you've heard of Jack Spong, and if you're in a mainline church, you're living in a world that he, if not created, at least helped bring along for sure. Well, if you've ever said something like, well, we need to change this in the church because it's just not where people are anymore. Um, or it's not welcoming. You know. It's not welcoming, whatever it might be. I mean, it, you can even find this in the evangelical world. But, you know, we've got, we've, we've talked about it many times before. You've got to conform the church you got to make the church look as much like the world as possible to get people in from the world in. And the reason we're not, we're losing millennials. The reason we're losing Gen Y is, is, is the young people is because we're not, we're, you know, we're not 
headlining social justice issues. If we just do that, then we get the, the pews full. And and that, that's not, I'm not saying people would say that would buy into all Spong's theology, but that's that's what he, that that's perfectly consistent with his understanding of what the church is and what the church is for. That's right. Yeah. And I think I in that respect, he's, he's more of a symptom than a cause. I mean, I wouldn't want to put um, his influence, um, his, uh, I wouldn't want to put him up to next to the genius of like a Henry Ford or a Mary Curie, you know, sort of these, these genius innovators. I would say that, that Spong, uh, to his credit, um, was at the very least, he was honest. Um, I think that he, you know, he, what do they say now? He said that. Except unspoken. for leaving the collar on. He was right. honest up until that point. But he, he said, what do they say now? Brave. Yeah, he said, the, brave. he said the unspoken part out loud. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I think the that's The quiet what, part out loud. Right. Yeah. He actually said he, he pulled the lid off of the agnosticism, the sort of cynical agnosticism, which masquerades as belief in liturgical churches in particular, because, you know, you can cross your fingers and have a short homily and like a reflection and just quote unquote, say the liturgy, read the liturgy. And um, that's right. And hang out um, on the uh, endowment for for generations uh, without actually being confronted by uh, your own unbelief. Uh, and he finally at least uh, called that, you know, and I think that the response to that was as fascinating as anything, because he was sitting there in the House of Bishops, um, essentially, uh, you know, provoking, you would like to think, the other theologians and the other bishops who had given their lives to these outdated, quote unquote, traditional ideas. And um, there was there was there were crickets, you know, I mean, there was a here and there people would speak out, but, you know, he was never um, censured. He was never brought up on charges and he was never removed, um, which is an, an implicit uh, at least acceptance of, if not uh, support of what he was teaching, which is unbelievable um, in a Christian church, um, you know. So but yeah, <laughs> that's to why you don't talk about him anymore. Um, yeah. To piggyback briefly on what Matt was saying about conforming to the world, I remember, like I said earlier, I actually served in the Episcopal Diocese of Newark for six years, and um, one of the churches that I served was um, one of the few that wasn't shrinking away to nothing. Not that we were growing by leaps and bounds, but we were doing okay. And so we were consistently called to make presentations at various diocesan gatherings about why that was, what our growth strategies were. And they inevitably wanted us to talk about our projector and our screen because, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what was... I worked at this church too as a yeah. summer intern, and they did have a quite a remarkable projector and screen. <laughs> <laughs> but this was literally seen to be, it. was assumed That's to be the thing that was causing not really even growth, but just sort of not death, blessed like, stagnation. We just seem to be dying a lot slower. Than and they the rest just of could us. not hear and would not hear that we might be actually trying to proclaim something life-giving into the lives of sinners. They just could, did not have categories for it. And even two bishops later, the reason is this deep, dark shadow cast over the diocese by Jack Spong. You just need a better fog machine. So it's, <laughs> the, the, the present fog machine isn't putting out of smoke and it doesn't <laughs> reflect the light as well as a one with more spokes. So just get a better fog machine. <laughs> Look, I don't envy this. I mean, I don't I don't envy the 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 world that we're being called to witness into. 
um, any more than the next person. I mean, uh, you know, there's some nostalgia back to the day when some of these fundamental Christian convictions about men and women and marriage and um, the sanctity of human life that were at the very least uh, were givens to a certain degree to the extent at, at the very least to the extent that if you said them out loud, you wouldn't be labeled a fundamentalist homophobe hater or whatever it was that the person talked to a kinder, gentler homophobe authoritarian that they talked, they called Tish, you know, or whatever in the, in that article. Um, and, you know, or, or what we saw with Karen Swallow prior, like simply articulating a Christian understanding of the sanctity of human life from the womb and trying to argue that that's not a crazy position gets, gets you labeled. I mean, if you look through some of the comments on that article, it's unbelievable the way that people talk um, about just genuine, um, historically held Christian positions on things. And so that's the world that we're walking into. And, you know, I don't envy that for myself or for my children. And yet, because we're not simply talking about its um, uh, expediency or sort of a pragmatic idea of what sort of version of God is going to make you uh, have a healthier, happier life, we're actually talking about God himself as revealed in through the scriptures and most importantly through his son for our sake. Well, then we have to be prepared um, come what may, you know, come what may. And I think that what we're getting now is a small snapshot into the intolerance that will will follow from people who hear what we're saying as sweetly as possible as we could say it, as flowerly as we could articulate it, as as seemingly inoffensive as we can say Jesus is Lord. That is going to provoke, you know, the law, I mean, the word of God is going to pr continue to provoke wrath. And that's what we see um, uh, happening um, all around us. And if Bishop, you take Bishop Spong's tact and try to defang, um, you know, or declaw the line of Judah, you know, it's like, well, then just look what happens. You end up without a church, without people who've actually been um, converted and saved, um, which is exactly the type church that is fine to have in the middle of Canaan or, um, you know, in the middle of the Canaanites or in the middle of Egypt. Uh, but that's not the type church uh, that is um, the bride of Christ. And so that's what we're going to um, continue to, to see as we move forward. I want to go back to something you were mentioning earlier about Spong being honest. And I've heard that being said now, well, he, he had the integrity to, to, to speak his truth or to say what he, he actually believed and not just mouth the creeds if he didn't believe them. Although, in, in fact, I think he did mouth the creeds, but, but even though he didn't believe them. Um, that, that gets back to something that C.S. Lewis wrote in God in the Dock, which is, which is you know, the, when you take office in a church, it, it's really not about you on a journey of personal self-discovery. It, right. it, it's not about you you know, finding yourself or finding your theology. When you take office in a church, it is by you upholding and promising to uphold, uphold the creeds and the confessions of that particular church. And if you don't, it, it, I'm sorry, it's not honest and it, is, it lacks all integrity to continue to hold office in that church. That's when you say, okay, I no longer believe that this is that there's a personal God. I no longer believe in the Trinity. I no longer believe that Jesus is the son of God or that he rose from the dead or that he was born of a virgin. So that means I need to take my collar off and walk away and become right. something else. Um, that I don't think there's any excuse for that. And I think, and I think it was, I think it was a, it was a dishonorable and, and dishonest and utterly lacking integrity for him to continue going on after he came to the, the, the place that he did. Um, and, and it's, and, and that's that also, that legacy has continued with us also. People, people look at him, they think he's courageous, they do the same thing. Um, and that's why the Episcopal Church is what it is. And that, that's why, you know, even the ACNA could one day turn into something uh and, and, and that it's not now, but, but it could be if, if, if 
if we allow ministers who wear the collar and profess to be Christians to say manifestly unchristian things without any kind of discipline and keep the collar, we're headed on the same road. Well, yeah. And I think, and I think I agree with you. And I think that's where I would say that he, he was honest. Now the question was, you know, and then he gathered support for his position to the extent that he wasn't the bishops who should, you know, we have elected bishops to protect us. You know, we have, we have elected shepherds to guard us from wolves uh, failed in their, uh, you know, the watchmen failed right there, you know, and of course they have a long history of that in the Episcopal church, you know, going back with Pike and Ryder and things like this. But I think, you know, but I do agree with you. I think that it's certain at some point, you know, it takes an incredible amount of narcissism to say my particular vision of this church is going to win out and I'm going to stand my ground and, and eviscerate it of all of its distinctives as a bishop um, and sort of go to sleep at night uh, in good conscience that I'm doing, you know, I don't know, the, the, the divine's work. I don't know if, you know, you could say God's work. Uh, so I agree with you there. I mean, I think that, that the whole it's it's a it's a it's a parable of the decline of the Western Church um, from the beginning of the um, you know the lack of censoring to the lack of uh, sort of fruitful engagement with some of his objections and some of his um, some of his concerns because many of them um, are the ones that if any youth minister should tell you um, a thoughtful kind of um, you know well read high schooler should at least consider some of these questions now wait a minute how do we understand the resurrection of the body and miracles in light of uh, modern science? You know, how do we understand the Bible written over generations as an er inerrant and authoritative? Like, how do we understand these questions, pastor? Um, and the answer is not, well, uh, I don't know, and no one knows, and anyone who claims to is an ignorant fundamentalist. The answer is, you know, come let us consider these together. I mean, that's what good pastors do, um, walk through the actual challenges to the faith and continue to strengthen and uphold the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says, uh, contend for it, you know, and what we have seen is that there was a lot of the faith that people used Bishop Spong to contend for, but it was the socially acceptable um, basically non-Christian um, Unitarian mystic faith um, that is easily palatable um, for people who are unbelievers, but is in fact shorn of any of its Christian distinctives. And so, you know, I mean, you look at through the, his 12 theses, I mean, to be fair, you know, the, the, I was again, so when I went back and I was introduced to Bishop Spong, I had sort of a crisis of faith because um, I was coming back to the faith. And I said, well, goodness, if this is a bishop who's allowed to preach and teach and sort of, uh, you know, lead a church, well, what is actually happening here? Like, how, how do I comprehend this? It was in God's providence within a year, I'd been introduced to um, uh, Trinity School for Ministry, where Nick and I went to seminary, and they had very much taken up the challenge of Bishop Spong, so much so that there was a book edited by the late, great Peter Moore called Can a Bishop Be Wrong? And it was a chapter-by-chapter -chapter refutation of the 12 uh, theses that Spong had um had put forth into the world. Um, and it was in, so encouraging and inspiring for a young man at the time to see um, these older theologians, you know, well-read with all the various degrees and, and um, knowledge of the ancient languages and things to defend the faith was such an, a momentous and, and well, frankly, life-changing witness to me as a young man that I've never forgotten it. And so I look at now, 20 something years later, we have a similar, oppor uh, we have a similar opportunity to, um, to, uh, to stand up and defend uh, once again, and hopefully inspire another generation of people to, um, to take up um, the challenge themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. I'm, I'm thinking of just more about this guy's, this man's legacy. And 
Um, I don't know. Were you guys, how old were you guys in 1998? Uh, you were, you were, were you still in like grade in school college. or something? Yeah, You're in college. We were, All right. we were juniors in college. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, were, you, were you following the Lambeth conference? Yep. Uh, no, no. But your someone has an email address. Um, Lambeth I do. 98. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Lambeth 98. You just gave away my, that's okay. Everyone knows it's on my, it's on our website. Um, the, uh, liberal party with the Episcopal Church, which wasn't as big as it is now, went into Lambeth 98, wanting to push for the Anglican communion, uh, affirming gay, um, gay everything. And it didn't. It was one of the best, one of the greatest victories the Orthodox side had ever won in the Anglican communion. Um, and afterwards, there were lots of things said about the Africans by the, by the elite, white, liberal uh bishops of the episcopal church wasn't um, that the the uh one generation from swinging in the trees comment yes yeah that was said um one bishop said that the the reason why uh the vote went the way it did is because the conservatives offered the african bishops chicken dinners and, and then one of the african bishops said you know we have chicken in africa it's, it's not Starkly don't have that, um, and and Spong was part of that. Spong was I, I, I was trying to look look for his exact quote, but he was also like he said some fairly things to today would have been considered just extremely racist. But I don't know that I take that back. Not necessarily because he's he's on the right side of the cultural issues, so you can basically get away with saying things like that when you're a, when you're pro LGBTQ or or pro whatever the cause is you or the day is and but he boy it was that when that happened the mask came off and and the darkness of progressivism just really reared his ugly head you know the darkness comes when there isn't a governor on it when you don't believe that the lord has spoken a righteous and holy law into the world, even that Jesus has come to redeem you from it. It's all, all of a sudden, all that darkness in your heart that Jesus says is the thing that makes you unclean, that does just start come pouring out into the world. And that comments like that make sense in that context. You think, I thought all you were talking about was being a good person, and yet this sludge has just come straight out of your heart out of your mouth and into the world because there's no reason not to say anything because the lord hasn't spoken authoritatively at all jesus has not come to redeem and anything is fair game yeah i think so too i mean the i mean i guess i guess the point is that um ultimately uh bishop spong and and liberal the liberal christian project it's in a in total is is ultimately uh, just a reassertion of religion of works it's 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 how can the human person harness human ability to make the world a better place um and jettison anything that seems to get in the way of that um including other humans uh, including uh, well, yeah 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 but i mean like it, with, but as with every law with every every kind of religion of works of that sort it's it's easily shown to be a paper paper tiger you, you because the people who promote it are always going to be shown to be uh, those who violate it and so that's why a religion of works will never work um you've always got to have uh, uh the 
the the grace that we find revealed to us in the New Testament. And that's what that really is what sets Christianity apart, real Christianity, not the kind of Christianity that this was talking about or that um, uh, the false representations of Christianity talk about, but actual biblical Christianity is something the world has never seen, that, that you are not able to change the world, you are not able to save your neighbor, you're not able to save yourself, you're not able to help uh, make the world a better place, and in fact, if all the world got together and held hands and did the same thing at once, like in the Tower of Babel, it would be the worst possible thing could possibly happen, um, but instead, we need a God who comes into the world from the outside and and rescues us because we can't do it ourselves liberal liberal theology hates that idea it abhors that idea every everything uh, everything within the the invisible church um that has caused the, the at least in the west that has caused the the great breakups we've seen over the last 20 30 years is 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 the result of uh, liberal theologians, liberal theology, abhorring the idea of grace and the idea of the work of Christ being sufficient in itself and the only way to the Father. That's right. Yeah, I mean, and, and the great irony, of course, is that what is being proffered in this sort of quote-unquote progressive Christianity is literally the definition of God's wrath, as we hear from Paul in Romans 1. Like, the, the idea that Christianity will liberate you from all oppressive structures, uh, whether that be your biological gender or your sexual norms or your, um, um, you know, whatever that whatever is impinging upon your freedom, um, we will offer you freedom from that, which is actually the definition of, of wrath. I mean, this is like God will gave them over to the to the base desires of their hearts, right? And of course, that's the seat of of uncleanliness, according to Jesus, you know, it's not what goes into you, it makes you unclean, but what comes out of your heart, you know, which again is abhorrent to, um, to quote unquote progressives, because that seems to necessitate an atonement, you know, that would see who then could be saved. Well, not you, uh, or none of us, but for the mercies of God in Christ, which, you know, has all sorts of implications, of course, you know, it's, again, I keep going back to this to this um, discussion that John Spong had of, um, it turns out it was a retirement of, of John Stott. So it wasn't in his obituary, but um, he says that John Stott's Christ, in John Stott's Christianity and the fundamentalist evangelical tradition he espouses will finally do nothing except justify the human divisions between the saved and the unsaved. <laughs> that religious stance will ultimately victimize every person who does not reside inside the definition of the Bible as quote revealed truth as Scott as Stott interprets it. I mean, this is this is the the wrath at the heart of the actual argument of the cross. I mean, this is what Paul talks about to the Corinthians. You know, he says we we know the sophists are there. We know that people are coming with flowery language who are sort of tickling your ears, but this is what we preach. Christ crucified for sinners, you know, and that, of course, is a stumbling block and a foolishness. But as Paul writes, for those of us being saved is the power of God. And so that will continue to be an affront and continue to be a shock and a scandal on. Um, and yet, uh, where that is preached, the church will survive, much to Bishop Spong's chagrin. It will not, in fact, die, but will be continued to be resurrected by the power of the Spirit through faith in the risen Lord. And that may um, you know, ebb and flow with respect to numbers, but in terms of the actual existence of it, we have no, we are no fear of, uh, of the gates of hell. Um, and Christianity, to the extent that it changes 
um, needs to sort of be enculturated with the language and the customs to a certain degree. But the offense, the, the central scandal and the essential central claims given to us um, in the person and work of Christ for sinners will um, will always be a divide, will always be a, a shock, and will always be the very thing that despite the chagrin and concern of the world will be what we uphold as our salvation. And so that's you know, I, I mean, I, I don't want to um, speak ill of the dead. And as we have said before, many people have tweeted, um, there's there's mysteries between the uh, departed and the Lord that are not we're not privy to. And we can pray for um, the mercies of God to extend far beyond what even seems humanly possible since they have extended to us, which, you know, which is means that we are not in a position to judge. Um, but we can sit in the um, in the pews that are empty, um, in part because of the evisceration of the faith by its leaders, and we can um, use this as a cautionary tale, uh, at, the, at, at least, um, for our current church and for the churches of the future of what happens when you... Um, you lose confidence in the in God. You lose confidence in His ability to communicate authoritatively and clearly. You lose confidence in um, His power over nature, and, um, and and you lose essentially faith in um, in in the gospel. Um, well, don't be surprised if your church uh, follows um, uh, dies very quickly uh, after that reality. Yeah, you know, I. I... I remember I, I, when he died and I got the notice, I posted on Twitter or Facebook, maybe both. I don't know. Um, just that I hope he repented before he breathes his last and turned to Jesus. Um, because, of course, that Christ and his sacrifice are more than sufficient to cover for his sins. Um, and then, you know, inevitably, people say, well, you're speaking evil of the dead. <laughs> um I, I think that if, if, and I pray he did, if Bishop Spong genuinely repented and turned to and, and trusted in Jesus before he died, that the last thing we would want, he would want us to do sitting next to Jesus is to, is to paint a rosy picture of his career. If he is with Christ, he would want nothing more than for us to debunk his thinking and his thought and to show it to be the lie that it was. Um, if he's not with Christ, then, then maybe not, but, but if he is with Christ, then he would want us, he would want those, he would, he would want his funeral to be a, a time mm -hmm. when the preacher stood up and refuted his theology and preached the gospel because it's a, it's a, it's a theology that sends people to hell. Mm -hmm. And if he's with Christ, he doesn't want people to go to hell. So I, 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 I don't know that it's possible, uh, to speak evil, of him in an objective way, except in, I guess if we were being personal, we could, but I don't think it's possible to speak evil of him if we're just speaking about his theology, because his theology was evil and just speaking, telling the truth about it is, is good. And something that I think he would affirm if he could hear it. It's mm. a good point, Matt. Yeah. And I think it is always, it's always worth noting. And we resemble this remark is that um, if you are taking a public office um, and you are speaking, you are deigning to speak for God himself, um, then we should be very careful of running afoul of the second commandment of speaking of his name and taking his name in vain. And I think that um, just judging practically and objectively from a theolog Christian theological perspective that the 12 theses at the very least, if not all of the rest of his books, 
um, seem to have gone, um, we should say, uh, transgressed that commandment with respect to what preachers, Christian preachers, have given their lives literally for um, for millennia um, to uphold, um, and to whom we are greatly indebted. So, I think you're right, Matt. I think that if uh, if God rests His soul, and if He is in the in in seated next to Christ, then um, which of us has not looked at our younger, more confused selves and hoped that perhaps no one listens as loudly to that part of our lives as they do to the right part. And we can say um, maybe and pray, in fact, hope that that's in fact um, where, where, what is taking place at this moment. Indeed there, but for the grace of God, go we. Okay, guys, that's going to be all the time we have this week. We do thank you listeners so much for listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Standing firm.